go ahead and get get started again with our our teaching time. How anybody want to share anything? Is there what any benefits from growing up in church or positives or negatives? Anybody wants to throw out there for the sake of the group? No? It's okay. I, I did grow up in church um, as well. I usually say, you know, to people, I, I grew up with the drug problem because I was, I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. So <laughs> I, uh, I did benefit from that quite a bit, I think. As I be, when I became a youth director at the age of 23, I'm sure a lot of the Bible knowledge I had, so much, uh, I have no idea how much I learned growing up in church and in youth group had an amazing youth pastor in high school who was a teaching, just a really good teacher, and I'm sure that I just was like a sponge, absorbed quite a bit of that uh, as part of growing up in the church. Um, so today, just Cammie's handing, handing out uh, a handout this, this week, and I don't normally do a handout. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today, and I'm going to hopefully connect some dots for you. Uh, with infant baptism, what does it mean to be a part of the covenant community? These are things that you don't, unless you're in a hardcore theology class, you don't normally get a lot of teaching on some of this stuff. So hopefully it'll answer some, some questions, connect some dots for you. Um, but it, there is going to be a lot of scripture, I'm just warning you, as we, as we jump into this. And this is a, a thing that we think about uh, with our kids, right? The, the whole reason we're going through this is the, our main desire— what I would think for a believer, your main desire would be not that your kids are successful and make a lot of money and go to a great college, although those are nice things, don't get me wrong. But the main thing is that your, our kids walk with the Lord, right? I, I feel like that is my constant prayer for my kids, thinking, okay, I just want them to know Jesus. And then no matter what they face in life, they at least can lean into Jesus and he's got it, you know, with that. So that's a constant thought that I have. But I look at my own family. I'm the youngest of four, and I think, so I have a, a brother who, who grew up uh, with the same parents I did, went to the same church as I did, and does not walk with the Lord at all right now. And so what does that mean? I mean, my mom even had a, a dream, she said, when Steve, my brother, was, was, young, was small, and my brother was kind of a hellion as a kid. And she, and she said she felt like the Lord told her that he was going to be a pastor. Now, I think maybe she had the wrong kid uh, in that dream. I'm like, huh, don't you see? Maybe you got the name wrong. Um, but there is a hope that she has, right, when it comes to my brother and, and what's going on. And so what is, that, what is that hope that we have with our kids? And I know if you talk to a lot of older believers whose kids are grown, you will talk to a lot of people who have a lot of pain. Right, a lot of people who uh, are struggling. Some of you in this room may have some children who aren't walking with the Lord right now, and that's very difficult. And we say, well, what? So how do, how does this all work out? What does it mean? So we know that the promises of God are true. Um, in Acts two, we have we have this. So Peter replied, and this is where where we where we get this idea of covenant kids, or one of the places. He says, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ." for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 39, and you'll hear this a lot of times when we do an infant baptism. This, the promise is for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So notice he says this promise is for you and for your children. So there is this promise that continues from the Old Testament and from Israel. Um, And then he says, for all whom the Lord will call. He again reminds us, well, he says, for you who are far off. That's the non-covenant kid, right? There are people who still need to come into the kingdom. And then he says, for all whom the Lord will call. He reminds us that he's the one who does the calling. He's the one who is in charge of that. And so you you see it even embedded in that one little verse. You know, he's saying, this is for you, it's for your kids, it's for those who are far off, that there's a lot that are not growing up in, in Christian homes. And then it's for everyone who God calls. So he's the one who's still uh, in charge of that. Uh, so progeny is a part of God's plan. I had a, a seminary professor who said that, you know, really we, we learn so much from studying ancient Near Eastern kings and that God's plan you see it kind of in the way that kingdoms work. God's plan from the beginning of Genesis is, he said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wanted the earth to be filled with his image bearers, his worshipers. And he wants his image all over the earth. He said, it's the same thing when, when you go look at Egypt. What do you see? We, were, we went uh, a few weeks, uh, a couple months ago, Kimmy and I got to go to Egypt and go through the the museum, and there's statue after statue of certain kings. And then when that king dies, the other guys make statues of their image and put it as far as their kingdom goes, there's images of them everywhere, right? And, and that God is doing the same thing, right? He wants his image around the world and that the original call to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply, and, that's, and you're going to do that. But once sin entered into the world, right, now we, we do that through uh, evangelism. We spread God's image uh, all over the world as believers more and more come to know him. His kingdom is growing and growing. So, um, so progeny has always, from the beginning, been a part of God's plan uh, for spreading his kingdom. Uh, we see it through infant, infant baptism as the sign of the covenant, which replaces circumcision, um, but we know that everyone who was circumcised in, in Israel, in the, in the Old Covenant, was not really a part of Israel. And so let's look at that. In Romans 9, Paul is talking about this, and he says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your, shall your offspring be named." This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. And then verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he's, he's taking us back to Genesis 21, um, you know, and he's saying, no, Abraham had more than one child, right? He had a, a, a child with his Egyptian handmaiden. And he's saying it's not through that child that, you're, that this is going to move on. It's going to be through Isaac, that the covenant. And you even see that when you, when you read through the genealogies in, in Genesis, it kind of goes, okay, God's line goes through certain kids, uh, through the line of Seth all the way down to Abraham. And then he begins with the family of Abraham. And not all, you know, all, not all genealogies follow, and not all the kids are walking with the Lord. And, but yet they are children of the, you know, the same parents, but it, it goes differently with the covenant. It's children of the promise and not 
that everyone doesn't belong to Israel. So everyone who was circumcised, everyone who became, who was born a part of Israel was not necessarily a true believer. And so he's, he's bringing that up. In Romans 11, he says this, Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, so we have this idea or this concept that the nation of Israel is everyone who considers themselves an Israeli who's born as one of the tribes, right? But then a true believer is somebody uh, is within that community. We have this, uh, this illustration of, of the visible nation of Israel. So, you know, you've got Elijah, and he's saying, I, you know, Elijah, this passage happened with Elijah right after he killed all the Baal worshipers. You know, he, he kills all of them, Jezebel is hunting him down, wanting to kill him. He runs, if you remember the story, he runs and goes all the way through the desert and ends up at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai. He goes up into a cave and he has this conversation with God and he says, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's righteous. I'm the only one who knows God. All of Israel is just horrible. Now, did all of the Israelites have the sign of the covenant? Yes, but they were Baal worshipers. They were uh, worshiping the Ashtoreth. They were doing all this. And so you had all of Israel, everyone who calls it, it, themselves Israel is, is in, the, in the box. But true Israel, the remnant, then, then God says to him, he says, no, there are 7,000 whom I have kept for myself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God raises up a remnant of true believers within a nation that's wicked at the time. Okay. Um, and so you see this concept all through the Bible, this idea that there, there is a larger group, um, and then there's the true believers within that. But So what are the benefits of being an Israeli? If you, if you grew up an Israelite, you know, you say, well, what, what are the benefits? And he says this in Romans 9 also. So Romans 9, 4, he says, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So think about it. If you lived in ancient times, would you have a better chance of knowing who God, the true God, is if you grew up somewhere in Germany in a Germanic tribe, or in Greece somewhere, or if you grew up in Israel? You would have a much better chance of knowing the true God if you grew up in Israel. You, all of those things would be around you, the prophets, the scriptures. They would be a part of your life. And so, sure, there would be huge benefits from being part of God's family. Yet, we also see that, right, there was a time where, at least during Elijah, where there was very few true believers in Israel because of the wickedness that had invaded that area. So there, there are definite benefits of, of being a part of that covenant community. All right, so Galatians then talks about us. Okay, who are we? In Galatians 4, he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Okay, you'll see this theme throughout the New Testament that basically, and this is part of covenant theology in general, right, that we, the church, are a continuation of Israel. We are the people of God. 
um, we have been grafted in. You'll see, and if you read through Romans, we've been grafted in to the, to the olive tree, you know, and other branches have been lopped off. And as Gentiles, we've been grafted into the kingdom. So we are part of this covenant. That's the beauty of the covenant theology. We believe God works with his people from Genesis to Revelation in one, you know, one story that he's telling about Jesus and that we're a part of that story. Okay, so, but we are children of the promise. And yet we know that everyone who's baptized in the church is not really a believer. So we also put the sign of the covenant on people, and we know because that, that all of them, just because you're baptized, that's not salvific. We're not Roman Catholic. We don't believe, well, if you've been baptized, now you're a believer. We, you know, if especially we, even when we do believer's baptism, we have hope that that person is a believer, especially when we do infant baptism, we have hope. So what does that really symbolize? Um, so I think, it, I think, honestly, what it symbolizes primarily is entrance into the covenant community, okay? When you are baptized, it's a sign and symbol that now you are a part of God's church. You are a part of the covenant community. Um, we have in the parable of the sower, we know that everyone who's baptized or everyone who's part of the church is not really a believer, right? In the parable of the sower, you see that. So in the parable of the sower, some of the seed falls upon the hard ground, right? And what happens? It, it doesn't bear fruit and that person doesn't become a believer. But what about the seed that falls among the shallow soil? What happens there? It springs up. And there's, it looks like there's growth there, right? So, and we've all experienced that probably with people you've known throughout your life. Someone is, wow, they really seem to have this experience. They walk the aisle or they pray at camp or, or something, and you see for a while this growth. So we know those people exist within the church, the, the bigger box of the church. And then you, there's also the, what, the, what about the third seed? The third seed grows up and what happens to it? It doesn't, it doesn't bear fruit because it's choked out by the deceitfulness of wealth. So we know that the, those people are also a part of the visible church. Um, and so you have another parable. There's a parable that Jesus tells about. Uh, he said there was a, an enemy who, you know, there's, there's a farm and he has this wheat growing. And at night his enemy comes and sows tares or weeds among the, the wheat, right? And that, that in the morning or later on when the harvest comes up, he sees the wheat growing among the tares. And what does he say? He says, they say, shall we go in and pick those out? He says, no, let them both grow up together. And at the, at the end times, we'll cut it all down and then we'll separate them into two piles, right? The wheat and the tares grow up together. So this concept you'll find throughout scripture. So let's take a look at the, at the, the next box. So this is, this is the church that we have today. And so this, this is what I didn't understand until uh, seminary, and it kind of started unpacking some of this. So what we see then, uh, you've got the, the visible church is everybody who claims to be a Christian, everyone who is, goes to church. Okay, that would be the big box. It's a big box. All over the world is the visible church. Everybody who's sitting in the pews today all over the world is a part of that. The invisible church are true believers that are sitting in the pews. So like we know today, if you go right, you know, the next hour, we're all going to be sitting in the main sanctuary. We know there are people who are in there who may not really believe. Maybe they're just going through the motions. Maybe they're cultural Christians. Who knows? But then there are definitely real believers, the invisible church, in that group as well, right? So this is this concept. So 
when your child gets baptized, they enter in, and this is what we all hope to see, right? Whether they get baptized as a child, as an infant. Um, let's take just an infant for the, for the sake of argument. So they get the sign of the covenant. They enter into the covenant community. The big box, remember, is the covenant community. And then eventually they make a decision or the Lord calls them to himself. They pray and they fully enter into a relationship with Jesus. Okay? And hopefully this is where they camp out. Okay? Now, is it possible, though, to baptize someone and they enter into the covenant community and they go off to college and they leave the covenant community and never return and never and don't walk with the Lord and there's no sign that they, that they really get it, that they believe? That is possible. Is it possible they even are cultural Christians and hang out right here all the time? That's, that's possible too, right? So I think this explains a lot. Uh, it explains some verses that are difficult. You know, when we, when we see this uh, from Hebrews 10, we have this, and, and um, it's a long passage. Let us consider how, may we, how, how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So that's our regular verse. Hey, you really should stay in church. It's a good idea. And judgment day's coming, but you know, we want to we wanna be there. Now look at verse 26. And this, this used to bother me so much when I would read this verse. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. So when you read this forever, you just think, okay, that really seems to imply you can lose your salvation, doesn't it? It sounds pretty scary uh, to think about that, but I think this is explained with that. Go back to that box, Kieran, um, the last illustration. So this is explained here, okay, because there are benefits when you enter into the covenant community. If you go to the parable of the sower, you should be getting hit with seeds in your face like all the time, right? That is part of that benefit of being a part of the covenant. If, if you're here, you're hearing the stories, you're hearing the prophets, you're hearing, I mean, the same benefits of what they talked about for Israel, we in the church get those benefits. We receive those benefits. Um, we have relationships with other believers. We get to see the Christian community at work. That's a part of it. We have the scriptures. We hear the gospel regularly. We get to see the sacraments practiced. All of these things. Surely salvation is nearer to those who are in the church. That is uh, the promise that we have. I, I was thinking about this, that it's kind of like we're, we should be surrounded by fruit trees. Okay, people around us, the covenant community should be bearing fruit and it should seem amazing, right? That they see the fruit in people's lives all around us. And I, there's a part of me that's like, why would they want to leave that and go into the wilderness where there is no fruit? 
Okay, now that does make us say, as, as their parents and as part of that covenant community, you can see with that analogy, what if there's not a lot of fruit where they're at and the outside world doesn't look much different? Okay, so if, if we're not authentically living before the Lord and them seeing those things in our lives or in our church, that, that could work against it, okay? You see, at least uh, to some degree, with that analogy, um, where that can happen. So, so we have this idea, they, they're in the covenant community, but they could be a covenant breaker. They could experience the joy, experience all of these things, just like the Israelites could experience all of this and really not believe. It is possible for them to go through and be a part of the covenant community and, and walk away. That is possible. Uh, and, but losing your salvation is not something that you see in Scripture. That is not possible. We don't believe that. First uh, John 2 says this. Um, they, now, this is kind of wordy, but it, you'll get it. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Okay, yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> he kind of meanders around, but you get it. He said, hey, you know what? The people who left, we know they're not believers. Because they, if, if they really belonged to us, they wouldn't have left. The fact that they left shows they didn't really belong to us to begin with. Um, now, and again, we have that parable of the, of the sower. Maybe they were like the seed that grew up in the, among the weeds or the seed that grew up in the shallow soil. So it showed some signs or evidence that maybe they were believers. But if they can walk away, then they aren't truly believers. Now we have the, the story of the prodigal, right? The prodigal son, though. He certainly was a son. He was a part of the family, and he, he wandered. He went to a far country. That was also part of my experience, okay? I definitely was a believer in high school. I was walking with the Lord. I was strong. And if you'd have met me when I was in the Air Force and living in Italy, there's no way you would have thought I was a believer. I was having a prodigal experience. And I was a believer. Most people who have my testimony would say, well, I wasn't really a believer. It wasn't until afterwards. No, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I was a believer. And yet, I, you can wander pretty far. Okay, so with our own kids, we, we, we cling to that hope that we have, even when we see them seem to fear. With my brother, you know, I have to think, where, you know, God, we're going to cling to your promise. We're going we're gonna to hold on to this, uh, this hope that we have. John 17, we'll read a couple more. Um, All mine are yours. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his, uh, for his people. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. So he's talking to God the Father. And I'm glorified in them. So them is, is us. He's glorified in us. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and I love this part, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, what our theology teaches is that everyone Jesus comes to save, he saves. He doesn't lose any. No one can take them out of his hand. That's another uh, John 6, 44. No one can take them out of my hand. You know, they're verse after verse of saying, once they're mine, they're mine. And he will not lose any. Uh, now, of course, he mentions Judas because that could be a problem. If you're like, wait a second, you didn't lose any, but what happened to Judas? He's like, that was part of the plan from the beginning. 
that Judas was going to do what Judas did. Uh, Romans 8 says, and this is a famous passage, you're all familiar. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. No, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And neither can our own sin separate us, right? Praise God that it doesn't, because we all would be separated from him. Uh, And so when your kids and my kids wander when they have a prodigal experience there is no guarantee that they will come and walk with the lord but there is hope right there's no guarantee but there is hope because we have these promises that come from god right that they have the benefits of the covenant they know the truth they've heard it it's been embedded in them and we cling to those promises of God. We cling to that hope as we pray for our kids. Um, if you want to do a more in-depth study, I would recommend just read through Romans 9 through 11. Uh, there's, there's a lot in here, but a lot of the scripture that I read today came from Romans 9 uh, to 11 in that area. And that's really where, because it's what's happening in that passage is Paul's kind of unpacking, hey, these, the Israelites are rejecting Jesus. So what's up? Are they part of the covenant or not? And he goes, you know, and he really unpacks this whole idea of God's the one in control of salvation. God is doing a work, but that he can graft those Israelites right back in uh, and and that he will. He believes that he will at some point see a huge uh, influx of of Jewish believers into the church. And we do pray for that. We pray that that would happen. So it's a, it's a very interesting study uh, if you want to read through that in more depth. But I do think this idea of, uh, of raising kids within the covenant community is important for us to grasp and understand as we, as we think about the benefits of the covenant. So let me pray, and Cammie's going to come up and, and share with us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for, for the church. Lord, the benefits that we have from it. Uh, Lord, may, may there be so much fruit around our kids as they grow up in this community, uh, that they, it is, that it would just be so attractive that the church itself would be markedly different from the world around it, that the joy they experience, uh, the depth of understanding, uh, the authenticity that they would see in us and in the church would be so attractive, Lord, that it, that they can't imagine, and that they, when they face it, Uh, that it would be a stark contrast with the world that they see around them. And Lord, would you just continue to grab our kids' hearts and draw them to yourself? And we thank you that when when our kids and when we belong to you, that nothing can take us out of your hand. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so you've been inundated by Scripture, and God's Word promises it will not return void. It will accomplish what he meant for it to accomplish. And there is great comfort in that. But if you're a mama... (laughs) This is a hard lesson, right? I mean, it just is. And if you are a believer and you follow Christ, and this is the theology you ascribe to, you've wrestled with it. I mean, I feel like we we probably all have. Um, One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Jonah. I love that book. Um, I've studied it and studied it, and I think I started studying it because I identified with Jonah, right? Like, if there was anyone that deserved God's wrath, it was Jonah, 
He ran from God. He rebelled. He complained. He would rather die than obey. And every time I would read Jonah, I would see myself. Um, I don't want to obey God lots of days. Uh, his will is not my will, and I think he should get on my plan, not me on his plan. And I've shaken my fist at him when, when things have not gone the way that I've wanted. And yet, throughout the book of Jonah, you see God chase Jonah down with his undeserved love and mercy and grace. Even the fact that we have the book is evidence that God was at work in that story. And it gives me great hope that God's love is bigger than my sin and my rebellion. And it gives me great hope as a mama. Because if God can love Jonah, God can love my kids. Even when I don't some days, right? Um, God knows what it's like to have a rebellious child. His first children, he gave one rule, and they disobeyed. Next, he gives ten rules to Israel, and they utterly rebel. It wasn't because God wasn't a good parent. It's not because God didn't spend enough time with them or give them truth to hold on to or teach them the right things. God was a perfect parent, but his children still rebelled. And I think that's a comfort. I mean, it is for me. So we can stop beating ourselves up as parents that we didn't do it right. Because if God in perfection had rebellious kids, we can't hope for better than that, right? Our children need a savior and that isn't us. We read in scripture, we see God's love overcome sin over and over. You don't even have to go through it. Like, I was thinking about it, and I was like, Adam and Eve. Like, you can almost write the history of Israel. Adam and Eve, Abraham, like, Jacob, Israel, over and over. Samson, Naomi. You can see God. God's people rebel. God's love follow them. God's people rebel. God's love follow them. Over and over, we see his unconditional love in the face of his people's rebellion, and ultimately in Jesus, the restoration of that relationship. God's love and mercy is so much bigger than mine or yours. Um, But as a mama, I want to control things. I want, um, oh, I remember when one time one of my kids expressed a doubt in life. And it was like the fear went through my whole soul. And I'm like, I got up in this child's face and I was like, are you doubting God? Are you going to rebel? Are you going to not follow the things that I hold dear? What's up? Like, you know, and my child looked at me with just like deer in the headlights, like, what do I even say? I don't even know what to say. And I think that fear is a reasonable or normal response I see people that are so much better parents than I am, and their kids seem to walk away from the faith. And if I'm honest, I can't believe that one of mine won't. I mean, I cry out to God. I look at each one, and I say, please, please, Lord, not this one. Not this, my beloved child. Please, please, please turn his heart, turn her heart towards you. And I cry out for them, but if I'm honest, I know too many that have walked away. And because I wasn't raised in covenant theology, I struggle 
Because I want to make it happen. I mean, I, I want some assurance that they're on the right road, that they're going to walk in obedience. I want to demand proof of their faithfulness. I want to see evidence they're followers of Christ. I want to see that fruit. Show me some fruit. Right? And on some days they might pass the test. But on lots of days they wouldn't. And if I'm honest, neither would I. Um, When I think about how cancer has claimed the father of a family that I love, or how a dear friend's marriage is to the point of breaking, or how another friend's son was violated, and another struggles with same-sex attraction, I want to cry out to God, and I want to say, where are you? Um, Yesterday I was reading Psalm 89, and it resonated with me. The psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. That's verse 6 and 7. But if you look at the beginning of the Psalms, he starts out at verse 1 with, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Even the psalmist had dissonance. Right? It's hard. And I'm thankful for the Psalms because they tell us that we are not alone. We're not alone. And that we can hope because God's promises are not dependent on us or our children's faithfulness. That regardless of the behavior I see in my children, God is at work with them and we can hope. And that's what I want you guys to walk away from here with. It's easy to look vertically and there might not be any hope vertically, but if we look Did I say that wrong? Horizontally. I said that totally wrong. There may be no hope horizontally if we look horizontally. But when we look vertically, there is always hope. There's always hope. Because God isn't standing there with a lightning bolt trying, waiting for the misstep. God is standing there with open arms waiting to embrace. That's the picture throughout scripture. And so I hope, because my children's faith is not in my control, but I know how great is the love of my God. I hope, because God is faithful, even when my children aren't. And I hope, because God's promise, because God promises to be at work, and even when I can't see it, and even when I doubt its authenticity, I believe that God loves my children more than I do. My faith isn't in their profession. It is in my God. So just as Psalm 89 ended, it says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And we can trust God. So I believe that Jeff's brother will come back to the Lord. I hope for it. Faith is being sure of what we'd hope for and certain of what we do not see. We cannot be limited by what we see on this earth. We have to look past it 
to God's promises. So we have extra time this morning because this was such a deep topic, and I really, we really wanted you to get a chance to talk at your tables and with each other and to share. This is hard. One of the things, if you look through the scripture and just underline the hope in each of the verses, most of them have a hope piece in them that I would encourage you to look for. And I want you to pray for your children by name because Jeff was like, as we were talking about this, he was like, you know, yes, the hope, but, but, but what is our role as parents in that hope? And I think it's to cry out. And so this morning, even as I was praying for each of my kids, I was thinking, okay, what is my hope in who God is for this child? So like for one of my kids getting ready to go to college, my hope is in God's sovereignty, that God is bigger than the decisions that we're making. My hope is in the character of God in these situations. So I wanted to give you guys a chance to sit around your table and share the hope that you have for your children in the character of God. What is the hope you're clinging to? And then to pray together by name. And, and you can do it as a table or you can divide it into pairs or however that best fits your needs. But I really wanted us, since this is our last parent, you to give some deep time talking to each other and sharing. So we'll let you know when it's about 10 past the hour or 15 past the hour so that you can wrap up. But I just wanted to give a chance to pray. And I'm not going to pray now because I want you to pray at your tables, okay?